JSTV is now on the air. Hey, how are you? Sorry that I'm not at home. But when I get the message on my telephone, you'll be the first Crazy Calls, a tape of seven different songs and funny recordings to put on your answering machine. I am very sorry that I'm not at home to take your call. Just $14.95. When I will get right back to you, it would be so very nice. Give your answering machine a whole new way to say hello for just $14.95. What you've actually done is bought a one-way ticket to the answering machine zone. Nobody's home. Nobody's home. I'm glad you called, but I'm not home. But I'll be back before too long. You gotta... Crazy Calls, a tape of seven clever and original recordings that work on any answering machine. Order now. You gotta leave your name. You gotta leave your number. To order your Crazy Calls tape for just $14.95 plus $2.50 for shipping and handling, call 1-800-453-1212. Have your Visa or MasterCard handy and call 1-800-453-1212 now. Beverly Hills is known as a society of wealth and privilege, but Billy Whitney doesn't seem to be getting his share. He thinks everyone is out to get him, even his friends. You never were one of us. He thinks that he doesn't belong and they don't even look like me. Why, why are you guys doing this to me, huh? He believes he's seeing things. Bad things. Beyond reality. Is it just his imagination? I'm not paranoid. All my fears are real. Or has Billy uncovered something terrible? Something unspeakable? Don't go home, Billy. What, you've been living with these people all your life and you didn't know anything about this? If you don't follow the rules, Billy, bad things happen. You know you'll make such a great contribution to society. Who are you? And now, Billy. It's showtime, Billy! Is fighting for more than just his sanity. He's fighting for his life. The time is coming for Billy to take his place. In society, it's all about fitting in. Man named Robert Moog. Moog, not Moog and a solid-state electronic device that replicated musical sounds. In 1969, Walter Carlos was awarded three Grammys for using it and others in a landmark album called Switched On Bach. I'm speaking, of course, of the synthesizer and related electronic instruments. There's no doubt that when the musical history of the 20th century is written, one of the major chapters will highlight the influence of electronic keyboards, and that a section will be devoted to Stevie Wonder, who helped bring them into the use for pop music, to Herbie Han Hancock, who elevated their use in jazz to an incredibly new level, to Howard Jones and to Thomas Dolby, whose exciting use of electronic technology is helping to shape the music of the 80s. Sit back, hold on you seats, folks. This place might really explode. Here are the incredible Howard Jones, Thomas Dolby, Herbie Hancock, and Stevie Wonder. Identify yourself. Howard Jones. Howard, 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 Howard Jones. Howard Jones, accept. Please identify yourself. Herbie. 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 Herbie
And now, our feature presentation. The Price of Fear. Brought to you by Vincent Price. Glancing through my morning paper over breakfast today, I noticed that an enterprising gentleman in the catering business has invented a musical hot dog called, would you believe, a humburger. <laughs> Isn't it amazing the things some people will eat? Food, by the way, is something of a hobby of mine, and I never cease to wonder at the incredible results that can be achieved by a good chef with a few basic ingredients. A little meat, a few vegetables, a glass of wine, a sprig of parsley, and voila. You know, there are few more interesting experiences than being allowed into the kitchen of a really first-class restaurant to watch a master chef at work. And, of course, this uh, privilege is rarely extended to anyone, which reminds me of an experience I had a few years back. And to give it the right flavor, let's call it speciality of the house. I was staying in New York at the time, and a friend of mine, Harry Laffler, knowing that I was interested in good food, invited me to dine with him one evening at his favorite restaurant. Harry was by way of being an international advertising man, and knowing the size of his expense account, I had imagined that I was in for an evening at one of New York's plushier night spots. Imagine my surprise, therefore, when I found myself being ushered towards a, a shabby brownstone building in an almost deserted downtown back street. Well, here we are. This is Bureau's. What do you think of it? Well, Harry, it's... I must say, it's not quite what I expected. It, it is rather dismal, isn't it? I'll have you know that Spiro's is the restaurant without pretensions. It is the one place in these ghastly neurotic times that has refused to compromise. When you enter Spiro's, you leave the insanity of this hour, of this day, of this year, and you find yourself for a brief span restored in spirit. You make it sound more like a, like a cathedral than a restaurant. I wonder... I wonder if I've done the right thing in bringing you here. Oh, come on now, Harry. I, I was only joking. You see, you are the one person I know with a knowledge of good food. Thank you. Knowing about Spiro's and not having an appreciative friend to share it with is like having a unique work of art locked in a room where no one else can see it. Anyway, let's not stand here talking. Let's go in. Good evening, sir. Mr. Laffler and a guest. Ah, yes, sir. Uh, please come this way, gentlemen. Well, the waiter led us through a mirrored foyer into a small dining room. It was no size at all, but the half-dozen or so guttering gas jets which provided the only illumination threw such a deceptive light that the walls flickered and faded into uncertain distance. There were no more than eight or ten tables in the room, and all but one were occupied. The few waiters serving moved amongst them with quiet efficiency. It really was very pleasant. And as soon as we were seated at the vacant table, I said as much to Harry. There. I knew you'd like it. But wait till you taste the food. By the way, 
Did you notice that there are no women present? Yes, I, I did. Isn't that rather odd? Spiro doesn't encourage them. Oh. And I can tell you his method of getting rid of them is very effective. Uh, excuse me, sir. Uh, do you wish to be served now? Uh, tell me, is the special being served tonight, waiter? Oh, I'm so sorry, sir. There is no special this evening. But it's been a month already. And I had hoped that my friend here... I'm sorry, sir, but you do understand the difficulties. Sir. Oh, well, what the hell. Uh, but I was hoping, Vincent, to introduce you to the greatest treat that Spiro offers. Oh, never mind. I'm quite sure that whatever we decide upon will be delicious. Uh, shall I serve at once, sir? Uh, yes, please. Very good, sir. Well, Harry, have you ordered in advance? <laughs> no. No, I should have explained. Spiro offers no choice whatsoever. But suppose we don't like what we're given. Oh, don't worry. No matter how exacting your taste, you will relish every mouthful. Uh, just think a moment about the advantages of such a system. For instance, instead of a hurly-burly of sweating cooks trying to prepare a hundred different dishes, here we have a chef who stands serenely alone, bringing all his culinary arts to bear on one task. Oh, then you, you've seen Spiro's kitchen. Tell me, what's it like? Unfortunately, I can't. I've never seen it. Oh. Believe me, I've tried. In fact, I admit that my desire to see the inside of this particular kitchen has become almost an obsession with me. Well, have you ever mentioned this to Spiro? At least a dozen times. But he just shrugs his massive shoulders and smiles. Still, I've never given up hope. At this point, the waiter reappeared, bearing two soup bowls and a small tureen, from which he slowly ladled a measure of clear, thin soup. I must confess that I tasted this soup with some curiosity. It was delicately flavoured, bland to the verge of tastelessness. Automatically, I reached for the salt. Well, what do you think of the soup? Mm, excellent. If you'll pardon me for saying so, you don't. Why? You do not find it excellent. <laughs> you find it flat and badly in need of salt. But how do you... uh, How do I know? Yes. Because that was my reaction when I first dined here. But I'm confident that you will make the same discovery as I did. By the time you've finished your soup, your desire for salt will be non-existent. Well, Harry proved to be quite right. And before I had finished the soup, I was relishing every mouthful of it. It was really wonderful. Harry smiled at me across the table. Well, do you agree with me now? Mm. Wasn't I right? Yes, you certainly were. You will find that the absence of condiments is only one of several noteworthy characteristics which marks bureaus. I may as well prepare you for the rest. For example, no alcoholic beverages of any sort are served here. Oh, really, Harry? Also, there is a ban on the use of tobacco in any form. Oh, but good Lord, is this a restaurant or a temperance hotel? You don't understand. By alternating stimulant and narcotic, you seesaw the delicate balance of your taste so violently that it loses its most precious quality, the appreciation of fine food. Not another word was spoken until we had both finished our main course. Nor was there any need for words in the presence of such food. It was delicious. And it was only with a great effort that I prevented myself from wolfing the lot at one go and establishing myself as a grade-A glutton on my very first visit to this amazing restaurant. When we had both finished eating, Harry and I smiled at each other contentedly. We were both aware that we had enjoyed an exceptional culinary experience. 
Harry, if I had any doubts about Spiros, I apologize unreservedly. In all your praise of the place, there is not a single word of exaggeration. Ah, that is only part of the story. You heard me mention the special, which mm. unfortunately was not on tonight's menu. Well, what we've just eaten is as nothing when compared to the absolute delights of that special. Oh, good Lord, what, what is it? I mean, nightingale's tongues, fillet of unicorn? Neither. It is lamb. Lamb? <laughs> oh, come on, you've got to be joking. If I were to give you in my own unstinted words my opinion of this dish, you would think me insane. <laughs> that is how deeply the mere thought of it affects me. It is a select portion of the rarest sheep in existence. Lamb Armistan. Armistan. A remote and almost unknown place on the border which separates Russia and Afghanistan. From chance remarks dropped by Sbiro, I gather that it's hardly more than a plateau which grazes the pitiful remnants of a flock of superb sheep. Sbiro, by some means or other, has obtained exclusive rights to this flock and is therefore the only restaurateur in the world ever to have lamb armistan on his menu. I can tell you, the appearance of this dish is a very rare occurrence indeed, and nobody ever knows the exact date on which it will be served. Oh, but surely Spiro could provide some advanced knowledge of this event. Well, huh? The only objection to that is simply stated. Should advanced information slip out, then the professional gluttons in which this city abounds, would get the opportunity to taste this dish and sooner or later drive out the regular patrons. You don't mean to say that these few people present are the only ones in the entire city who know of the existence of Spiros? In the entire world. Oh, that's incredible. It's kept a secret by every single patron. A solemn obligation. By accepting my invitation this evening, you automatically assume that obligation. I hope you can be trusted with it. Well, if that's the way you want it, Harry, of course I can. It may sound strange to you indeed. It may border on eccentricity. But I'm a solitary man. And I feel to my depths that this restaurant is both family and friend to me. I must confess that until that moment, I, I had never really thought much about Harry's private life. To me, he was a pleasant friend and dining companion... And his private affairs had never really concerned me. Now hearing him refer to Spiros in this manner, I almost came to feel sorry for him. By the end of two weeks, Harry's invitations for me to join him at Spiros had become something of a, of a ritual. Now, I am by nature one of those people with a lean and hungry look... But I began to notice that I was rapidly putting on weight. I was, to tell the truth, becoming plump. I began to wonder whether Harry, by no means a lightweight, had also been lean before he started to dine at Spiro's. Thinking the whole thing over, I decided that I would not refuse to eat at the restaurant until I had both tasted the lamb Armistan and also been introduced to the amazing Mr. Spiro. And then one night, a few weeks later, I achieved both these ambitions, and both, I may say, exceeded my expectations. Ah, good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. Tonight is the special, sir. What? Well, <sighs> this is it. 
The cumulative triumph of all times. And faced by it, you are embarrassed by the very emotion it distills. Yes, I must confess that my heart is certainly beating faster than usual. Tell me, Harry, the, the other diners, do they feel the same way? Well, of course they do. Look around you and judge for yourself. Yes, you're right. Anyway, there's comfort in numbers. It's nice to know that we all have the same basic animal feelings and can anticipate, or or should I say, slaver over our meat. <laughs> oh, look, one of our number appears to be in for disappointment. Hmm? Over there, at the end table, the empty seat. Oh, yes, the stout bald man. Hmm. He's not here tonight. I do believe it's the first dinner he's missed here in weeks. Rain or shine, crisis or calamity, I don't think he's missed an evening at Spiro's in ten years. Imagine his disappointment when he finds that he's missed the speciality of the house. <coughs> oh. Mr. Laffler and friend, I am so pleased, so very, very pleased. Ah, oh, Mrs. Spiro. Uh, tonight, gentlemen, the lamb army stand will be an unqualified success. I myself have been stewing in the miserable kitchen all day, prodding the foolish chef to do everything just so. The just so is the important part, eh? Uh, but I see your friend does not know me. An introduction, perhaps. The words ran in a smooth, fluid eddy. They rippled, they purred, and I found myself hypnotized and could do no more than stare as Harry performed the introductions. Spiro's mouth the mouth that uncoiled this sinuous monologue was alarmingly wide with thin, mobile lips that curled and twisted with every syllable. He had a wide nose and wide set eyes. It was an amazing face, and somehow I had the feeling that I had seen it before. It was somehow familiar. I am so very pleased to meet you, Mr. Price. So very, very pleased. Oh, thank you. Uh, how do you do, Mr. Spiro? You uh, like my little establishment, eh? Oh, yes. You have a great treat in store for you today, I assure you. My friend is by way of being a great admirer of yours, Spiro. True. Very great compliment. You compliment me with your presence, and I return the compliment with my food, eh? <laughs> but I assure you, the lamb armistan is far superior to anything of your past experience. All the trouble obtaining it, all the difficulty of preparation is truly merited. You know, I've wondered why, with all these difficulties you mentioned, why you even bothered to present lamb, Armistan. Surely your other dishes are excellent enough to uphold your reputation. Uh, perhaps it is a matter of psychology. Someone discovers a wonder and must share it with the others, eh? Mm. Or perhaps it is just a matter of good business. Well, then, in the light of all this, and considering all the conventions you impose on your customers, why don't you turn it into a private club? <laughs> so perspicacious. Ah, I will tell you. Because there is more privacy in a public eating place than in the most exclusive club in existence. Here, no one inquires into your affairs. No one desires to know the intimacies of your life. We are not curious about our guests. We welcome you when you are here... We have no regrets when you go. That is the answer, eh? Yes, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I had no intention of prying. No, 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 you are not prying. On the contrary, I invite questions. Uh, don't let Spiro intimidate you. I've known him for years, and I assure you his bark is far worse than his bite. But before you know it, he'll be showing you all the privileges of the house, except inviting you into his 
precious kitchen, of course. <laughs> now, for that, you may have to wait a little while, I'm afraid. What did I tell you? Come on, Asmira. The truth. Has anyone except staff ever stepped into that kitchen of yours? You see on the wall over there the portrait of one to whom I did that honor. Hmm? A dear friend and a patron of long standing. Where? Oh, yes, there. Oh. Who is it? Oh, it's, it's Andrew Herring, the, the writer. You know the one, Harry. He used to write those marvelously cynical articles for the New American. And then he took himself off some to Mexico, I think it was, and, and disappeared. Of course. Here I've been sitting, staring at that picture for years without recognizing it. It must have been a blow for you when your old friend disappeared, Spira. It was, I assure you, gentlemen. But I like to think of it this way. He was probably greater in his death than in his life, eh? Hmm? Oh, a most tragic man. He often told me that his only happy hours were spent here at this table. Pathetic, is it not? And to think the only favor I could ever show him was to let him witness the mysteries of my humble kitchen. <laughs> You seem very certain of his death. I, after all, as I remember, no evidence has ever turned up to support it. None at all. Remarkable, eh? Ah, but no more talk, please, gentlemen. For here comes the speciality of the house. Lamb Armistan. Spiro served the meal himself, taking great care not to lose a single drop of gravy as he sliced the joint underdone to perfection. He filled the two plates with the chunks of dripping meat. Ah, gentlemen, bon appetit. With great deliberation, I took a mouthful of the lamb armistan. It was magnificent. Good, eh? Mm. Better than you imagined? It is as impossible for the uninitiated to imagine the delights of lamb armistan as... Uh, as... For a mortal man to look into his own soul? Perhaps. Perhaps you have just had a glimpse into your own soul, eh? <laughs> yes, perhaps. And a gratifying picture it made, too. All fang and claw. Well, I must be going. But sometimes, my friend, when you have nothing better to do, sit perhaps for a little while in a dark room and think of this world and what it is and what it is going to be. Then you must turn your thoughts to the significance of the lamb in religion. It will be so interesting. And now, gentlemen, I have interrupted your meal for too long. Au revoir, gentlemen. Au revoir. Au revoir. Hmm. He's an interesting man, Spear, a very interesting man. You know, Harry, he, he reminds me of someone I... I just can't think who... You, you don't think I offended him in any way, do you? Offended him? No. Goodness, no. He loves that sort of talk. Lamb Amistam is a ritual with him. Get him started, and he'll just go on forever. It was a month later that it finally came to me exactly who it was that Spiro reminded me of, and when it did, I, I laughed out loud. <laughs> of course, Spiro reminded me of the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland. You remember, the cat only grinned when it saw Alice. It looked very good-natured, she thought. Still, it had very long claws and a great many teeth, so she felt that it ought to be treated with respect. <laughs> I, I mentioned this to Harry that night as we were walking along that dismal street that led to Spiro's. 
Uh, you may be right, but I'm not a fit judge. Anyway, it's a long time since I read Alice in Wonderland. Huh. A very long time. Help! What? Help! Look, look there. Outside Spiro's. Isn't that one of the waiters? Yes. Looks as though he's in trouble. He's being attacked. Come on. Help! God damn them. Push me, would you? Looking for a goddamn fighter. Well, you got one, mister. Let me go. Let me go. Not yet, you lousy little creep. Well, what's going on here? Help me, sir. This man, he's drunk. He tried to stab Oh, drunk, am I? Oh, well, we'll... Hey, you... Hey, grab him, Harry. Quick, look out for that knife. Let, 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 let go of him. Do you hear? Let go. Hey, what, what the hell's happening here? I'll, I'll cut your goddamn throat, mister. No, you, you don't. Boy, is he, is he all right, do you think? That was some punch, Harry. Well, he, he, I think he's stunned. He banged his head as he fell. Yeah, well, in any case, it's a job for the police. No. No, sir. What? No police. Mr. Spiro does not like police. Oh, now, wait. I beg you. No police. Uh, anyway, it's coming around. Oh, he'll be all right. But what started all this, anyway? I, I, I pushed against him accidentally, and he accused me of robbing him. He's, he's drunk, sir. Uh, you can say that again. Well, now, you go inside and get cleaned up. We'll see to him. Thank you, sir. To you, I owe my life. If there is anything I can do to repay you. Uh, you just cut along, and if Mrs. Beard has any questions, you tell him to see me. Yes, sir. You saved my life. Thank you, sir. And with that, the waiter disappeared into the restaurant. Well, after all the excitement and kerfuffle of that incident, I must confess that I found I had quite an appetite. And as soon as we were comfortably seated in the restaurant, Harry and I debated with some trepidation as to whether or not we could expect the special lamb armistan that evening. Soon our regular waiter appeared and carefully set two tumblers on the table. We almost simultaneously inquired after the special. Uh, no, sir. I'm, I'm sorry, sir. No special tonight. Oh, hell, just my luck. And I'll probably miss out on it next time, too. Why, Harry? You going away? Yes, damn it. I'm off to South America for a month or two in order to mount a new campaign for some very rich clients. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. When do you leave? Tonight. I managed to wangle some reservations. This was intended to be in the nature of a farewell celebration. Oh, and no <laughs> special. What a shame. <laughs> Just my luck. Uh, well, I I'm going to miss you, Harry. I have enjoyed our evenings together, and these little dinners of ours have, well, they've come to mean a great deal to me. Uh, shall I serve now, sir? Uh, of course. I didn't realize you were waiting. Shortly afterwards, the waiter served us, and we turned our attention to our dinner. Harry finished his quickly and continued to bemoan his fate and to regret loudly the thought of missing Lamb Armistan during his trip... Then, just as I finished my meal, a waiter leaned over to take Harry's plate. It wasn't our usual waiter, but the man who we had rescued from the drunken sailor. I asked him how he was feeling, but to my surprise, he completely ignored me, and with the air of a man under great strain, he whispered to Harry, My life, I owe it to you. I can't repay you. Well, you have repaid me with your thanks. Please, let's hear no more about it. But I will help you, sir, even if you don't want me to. Do not go into the kitchen tonight. Huh? My life for yours, sir. Tonight or any night. 
Do not go into Spiro's kitchen. Why shouldn't I go into the kitchen? <laughs> Don't be absurd. What's going on here? Is everything all right, gentlemen? Ah, oh, good evening, Spiro. Uh, this man is a little unnerved, I think. Ah, yes. An unfortunate experience. He's saying something about my not visiting your kitchen. What's it all about? Do you know what he means? But of course. He was giving you good advice. It so happens that my too emotional chef heard some rumor that I might have a guest in the kitchen tonight. He flew into a fearful rage and even threatened to give his notice on the spot. Hmm? However, have no fear. I have succeeded in showing him what a signal honor it is to have a true connoisseur observe him at his work firsthand. That is all. No, Sancho, you are at the wrong table. See that it does not happen again. The waiter slunk away without daring to raise his eyes, and Spiro drew up a chair to the table. He seated himself and drew his hand lightly over his hair. My invitation for you to visit my humble kitchen, I, I had hoped, Mr. Laffler, to be a surprise, but now the surprise is gone and all that is left is the invitation. Are you serious? Do you mean that at last we really are to witness the preparation of food in your kitchen tonight? Uh, no, Mr. Laffler, not both. I am faced with a dilemma of great proportions, gentlemen. You, Mr. Laffler, have been my guest for ten years, but... Our friend here. Oh, Mr. Spiro, I, I, I really understand perfectly. I, I mean, this invitation is solely to Harry here, and naturally my presence is embarrassing. Oh. Well, look, no, wait a minute. As it happens, I, I do have another engagement for later, and I must be on my way anyhow. So, you see, there's no dilemma at all, really. Absolutely not. That wouldn't be fair at oh, all. No. Surely, Spiro, you can make an exception on this one occasion. I'm very sorry, Spiro. Harry... I am not going to sit here and spoil your great adventure. Believe me. And, and then just think of that ferocious chef. <laughs> I'm sure he's just dying to get his cleaver into you. <laughs> <laughs> so humorous. So I'll just say goodbye now and leave you to Spiro. I'm sure he'll take pains to give you a good show. Well, that's good, Vincent. Thanks. I hope you continue to dine here while I'm away. Oh, and have a, have a good trip, Harry. Thank you. Bye now. I will expect you, Mr. Price. Au revoir. Au revoir. And so I left them to it. The smiling Spiro and Harry Laffler, about to realize his greatest ambition. On the way out, I stopped in the foyer to collect my coat, and as I was straightening my tie, I caught a glimpse in the mirror of Harry and Spiro... Already at the kitchen door, Spiro was holding it open invitingly wide with one hand, while the other hand rested lightly on Harry's plump, meaty shoulder, squeezing it ever so gently, almost lovingly, rather in the way a housewife squeezes a prime fat turkey before she puts it into the oven. I've never seen or heard of Harry Laffler again. Shortly afterwards, I left New York in order to do some filming in England. I've not been back since, and therefore I have never had the opportunity of dining again at Spiro's, nor of renewing my acquaintance with its mysterious owner. In the intervening years, however, my interest in food and its preparation has increased, and I, I can now create and experiment with recipes of my own... <laughs> 
But I must confess that even in my wildest flights of culinary fancy, I, I have never yet dared to attempt lamb amistad. That was Vincent Price bringing you The Price of Fear. Co-starring in The Speciality of the House was Hugh Burton with Francis DeWolf, Vernon Joyner and William Slay. The Speciality of the House was first recounted by Stanley Ellen, dramatised by Barry Campbell and produced by John Dyers. Suppose someone said to you, we can protect your privacy for only $49.95. We can make sure that when you talk on the phone, no one is listening on an extension. No operator answering service has stayed on the line, and no one is tapping your phone. Think what it would mean to your peace of mind. Whether you use phone guard to detect eavesdropping or tapping, it's ideal for businessmen. Dating privacy and family privacy. Protect your children from accidentally picking up the phone extension and hearing a dull conversation. Here it is, patented portable phone guard. Screw it on your phone if it flashes red. Someone is eavesdropping or tapping on your line. Now listen to this incredible offer. If within 30 days your phone guard does not flash red, we'll send you absolutely free an extra phone guard as a gift. But wait, that's not all. For the first 200 callers who order, we'll include a bonus surprise gift and a $10 cash money order. That's right, a surprise gift and a $10 cash money order. Call now, phone guard. Little Richard, it's now um, 16 years since you had your first hits. Oh, um, yes. Do you realize that, uh, well, you must realize that at your performances, now there are people who weren't even al alive when you first began uh, recording. Yes, but I have woke them up now. Everybody that wasn't alive when I started and was gone, I have brought the spirit and put it on them. <laughs> they have resurrected. They are here now. And we'll be out there on Saturday night to hear me at Wembley Stadium when I'm going to let it all hang out. Could I say something? Go ahead. Let it all hang out with the beautiful little Richard from down in Macon, Georgia. I am the king of rock and roll. Ow, ow, ow. My, 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 my. I just had to do that. Now I feel so much better. I got it out. Were well, you always so shy? Huh? Were well, you always so shy? No, I'm Less. not. <laughs> A lot of people say I'm shy, but... Ooh, wee, I'm not. Tell me now, um, in 1956, you had a lot of hits. But before that, what were you doing? I was a dishwasher at the Greyhound bus station in my hometown, Macon, Georgia. I had been washing plates for so long, I was tired. And I wrote Tutti Frutti and Good Golly, Miss Molly, and bless your soul, I got out of the kitchen. Long, tall Santa just took me on to California, and I stayed there. What sort of family background were you from, though? What, um, I was from, you... uh, my mother had 12 kids. I have six brothers and five sisters, but I was the best-looking one of all of them. And I'm not conceited at all. What do they all do now? Uh, well, I have a brother. He's a CPA. My sisters are, two sisters are nurses. But you're the only person that's in Yes, show in show business. Yeah. I'm the only one. See, because they don't like to dress like I do. I like to put it on. 
I had noticed, actually. I love to put it on. I like to shine. In you fact, I think everybody's supposed to do their own thing. This is what you call doing your own thing time. Do you always dress like that? Or? Every day. I go to the grocery store like this, and people turn around. When I walked in the airport here in London today, a man dropped his cup of coffee. I notice you're wearing makeup. Do you wear makeup? Yes, I do. All I the know time? That, yes, you're supposed to wear makeup. Just, you know, just like when you to toast your bread. Yeah. I put sugar in your coffee. You're supposed to add a little touch to it. Yes, I must remember that. Yes, God. You're supposed to do it. How do you develop your particular style, your resonance of voice? Well, uh, you know, uh, I used to be an opera singer. I used to sing opera. You didn't know that? Classical I didn't know that. music? No, I didn't you know, know that. that? I'm, no, I'm sorry. Then I started singing rock. Uh, I was playing for the church. My grandfather was a preacher, Reverend Penniman. He died. I used to play for him every Sunday morning because he was take up collections about seven times. You know, just one more penny, mm -hmm. just one more quarter. And the more you give him, he'd steal one of another one. So I used to play two to fruit and long tall Sally while he'd be preaching. But he didn't know it. <laughs> They'd be shouting, throwing empty pocketbooks and purses upon the stage, whatever they call them in the country. And I played, and so finally, Lord Price heard me, and I sent a tape, and Bumps Blackwell met me in New Orleans. And my first record came out and hit. And did you know that Elvis Presley and Pat Boone sold more of Tutti Frutti than I did? And I wrote it and sung it. Did that bother you? No, it didn't. It made me feel good. They opened a the door that was locked, and I couldn't get in. And I wrote it. And you got in afterwards? Yes, I did. And now my wife and my little boy, they're happy with me with Tutti Frutti. And then when you were really on top... In 57. I'm on top now. Oh, but when you were really enormous. I'm you know. enormous now. Just said that I ain't got my light on up there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Initially, when you were enormous, well, right? God bless your heart. In 1957, 58, yes. you retired. Yes, I did. You came back in 63, about, mm -hmm. right? No, um, I came back in 60. Oh, that's, yeah. when I, that's when I took the Beatles with me. See, I played uh, a, a Liverpool for Brian Epstein. He had a record store, and I took the Beatles and Mick Jagger with me. Mick Jagger was living on a truck. I had Jimi Hendrix playing guitar for me. I had Billy Preston on the organ, James Brown, and Joe Tex was my vocalist. I had all of them. That's the reason I'm the king. All of them came from me. Poor little old bit of me, a little Jewish boy, Black Bottom from Georgia. <laughs> Me. What did you think of Paul McCartney's version of Long Tall Sally? I think it was fantastic. I he, love Paul. He's beautiful. I was, love Mick, too. Yeah. Hello, Cliff Richards. I still love you. He's all right. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you said that. Um, there was a time, though, when you made sacred albums. I still do. I, I consider yeah. my music sacred, and I consider that Long Tall Sally is sacred. Uh, how would you mean that exactly? Uh, I, uh, I don't mean that it's a hymn, like an anthem in church, but it's nothing bad about it. No, it's a song of... Um... A song of love and joy. In a world of chaos and commotion and strife, we need a little joy. When I sing my songs, you can't sit still. Your big toe shoot up in your boot. <laughs> I've learned that through the years. Yeah. Tell me, do you feel... Um, do you feel in yourself... Uh, uh, what's the word? Rather shy. I mean, you know, you walk around like this. Do you ever, ever feel that you want to hide away? Oh, yourself, no, you know? God. I don't want to hide nothing. God knows I don't. I ain't never hear nothing. Holy mackerel, Andy. I ain't never hear nothing. I want every, I let it all hang out. 
every bit. I don't hide none. I think that everything is supposed to be showed, your limbs, everything's supposed to work in the right function, in the right pause and the potions that you have a notion to give out to the world the love, the gentleness, the tenderness, the kindness. Uh, you ain't supposed to hide them. You got it. God gave it. Show it to the world. No, I don't want to hide. I love, I love when the people turn around and say, there go little Richard. I said, thank God she know me. He know me. Because I'm spreading a little joy to a baby boy, a little love to a baby girl. Ain't nothing wrong. You ain't hurt nobody. You're helping the world. You know, that's why I want everybody to come out to Wembley Stadium and see me Saturday from 10 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock Saturday night. Let me spread a little love, a little joy in London that I'm still the old thunderbolt from the Middle West. <laughs> I understand there's been a little friction between who is going to be on the top of the bill, you or Chuck Berry. Oh, I'm going to fix him. I am going to fix him. I thought he was your friend. I, uh, he is my friend, but I'm going to fix him. They made him the star of the thing, and I, my contract said that I was the star. I am going to fix him. He, the Chuck Berry, I call him Blackberry. My <laughs> mama used to make Blackberry wine. I am going to fix Chuck Berry. I am going to upset his nerve and let him know that I am the king of rock and roll, the undisputed king, and can't nothing take my throne. I am going to show him that he is from the valley and not from the mountain. Chuck Berry know that I was a star, been a star all my life. He can't close no show behind me. How can he have the nerve, the audacity to walk on? I'm Little Richard. Chuck Berry, they built him over me all these years, 23 years in show business. I'm the creator, the originator, the emancipator. I am the one. And I, when you come out, I'm going to fix Chuck Berry. How you his Blackberry will be mashed. How are you going to fix him? I am going to shake his nerve. He can close the show, but when I get through, it's going to be closed anyhow. And that's the truth. Bagels. Bagels in Brooklyn. Go hand in hand. Used to be Bagels, Brooklyn, and the Dodgers, but we still have Brooklyn and the Bagels. Bagel is part of my whole background. Bagels was a breakfast food, a lunch food, a supper food. These people in the Midwest, they wouldn't know a bagel from a donut. The only reason they ever saw a bagel was one fell off a truck. Four professors were dissecting it before they found out what it was all about. Life in Brooklyn rotates on bagels. What else is there in life? Hot bagels that taste beautifully. The process of making bagels, we have to put flour in, uh, malt, salt. What you putting in And we put pails of water in. And in the water, we put the yeast in. We mix the yeast by hand. And the machine starts running about a half hour. By that time, all of the work is done, all the processing is done. And then we take the dough out. When we take the dough out, we put it on a table.
This is cornmeal. We put it on here so the bagels won't stick. Then we start cutting it like this. We get it down firm, and then we start making strips. Now we start making the bagels. I guess everybody knows bagels in New York are just one of these things that go together. As where if you, you go outside of New York, a lot of places don't even know what a bagel is. From what I understand, I think the reason for that is the water. In uh, New York, there's something in the water that does it. These bagels are much better than the machine makers, because this is a handmade bagels. There's a better taste to a handmade bagel than a machine. Each bagel that I'm making now should weigh approximately about four ounces, four and a half ounces, you know, right around there. On a board like this, you get, you put them down, seven down, five across, 35 bagels on a board. And a dough around the size of this, you should get about 90 to 100 dozen out of it. I wait for the pot to boil. As soon as the pot starts boiling, I take my bagels and throw them in. These are water bagels, they have to cook. They have to sell and make sure they cook. Yeah, I'm putting the onion seeds on, some garlic. Putting some poppy, some sesame, now with some salt, the rest I'll make plain bagels. Now, water on, take the bagels, six in a hand through, through the holes, spread them on. That's been around until the caps get dry, and then I turn it over, then I let it go around until it bakes out. It's a 400 degree oven. Now I'm going to turn the bagels over. I let them roll in about three minutes so they won't stick to the oven when they're wet. Hey, uh, kid. 
Thank you. Have a good day. Okay. When she's smiling, she bought bagels. When she's smiling, everybody smiles, everybody laughs. Bagels in Brooklyn. Do you know what bagels are used for? You got a flat, you got old bagels in your car, you pick your flats. Hot, handmade, delicious. It's good for any type of epidemic that ever happens in Brooklyn. Have a dozen bagels in your safe. There it is. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Nah, it gives me them bigger. Without this, I'm a lost soul. You can be living in Peoria, in Ashcan, wherever you live. If you haven't got a Brooklyn handmade bagel, you ain't living. You heard it? Eh? The Micro Machine Man here presenting the genuine original, colossally collectible, most midget miniature episodes of the real things. Micro Machines. Dramatically detailed, stupendously styled, smaller than enough, this one or this one. And now with a totally terrific town, the new Micro Machine Super City 2-Box playset. Closed, it's a mild matter 2-Box. Open, it's a Micro Machine USA. Cruise your mini Micro Machine vehicles, planes, and boats to the police station, the marina, the mini motorcycle repair shop, the gas station, the construction office, work, the real working drawbridge, highway, passenger wrap, and garage doors. Or take a Micro Machine flying machine in for a landing. Phew! This place has it all. The new Micro Machine Super City 2-Box playset from Galoo. The one and only outrageous original miniatures. Remember, if it doesn't say Micro Machines, it's not the These girl groups, um, it, it, and, and this deals with the merchant, with the utilization of sex to sell music. Hasn't it gone too far? Yeah, I'm always amazed at these guys that are so so wimped out that they have to put sexy girls in their videos, even though it's a male group. I'm still astonished at that. I mean, really, where did their fucking balls go? I mean, that they they gotta fucking have, you know, all sexy models. I mean, they're really so unconfident that they have to stick these, you know beautiful girls to replace them almost you know it, it's really strange phenomena what to you okay now do you both write the lyrics yes mm -hmm. what what is the best lyrics either one of you have written all right send her back is that for me <laughs> okay. What what lyrics have have you written that has have, have been your favorite the the, the most insightful Give me an example for, for, for my... Oh, I don't know. It's hard to say what lyrics did I like. I think you, the one that you wrote, um, the um, the one that we never... The one on the last record. Which one? About the... Um, I like English Boys. I wrote a song about John Lennon and I like... Yeah, that was nice. Uh, and uh, about him being assassinated and stuff. And then I always used to use a line from Edgar Allan Poe in everything I wrote. And I tried to put a line from Edgar Allan Poe on every record. And just, I don't are you a good writer too, Debbie? Are you, are you good with, with lyrics? Um, sometimes. Sometimes I, I do. I surprise myself. I'm really happy about it. How, how, tell me, because I'm going through the end of a marriage, what have you written about in terms of, of love that, that's been particularly compelling for you or touching or sad or truthful or rough? I love No, no, no. I think um, In Love With Love is, is like, uh, I did pretty well with that one. And also Secret Life was a... Uh, Sort of had a nice, hi Carla. <laughs> and, um, well, I don't know. Rapture was sort of interesting. Rapture was a lot of fun. I don't know, our songs and our lyrics have, have like a wide, um, sort of, you know, wide, uh, wide field of reference. So, you know, I, I can't really 
It's hard to remember them all right now. If you promise to read my screws every week, I'm going to listen to all your songs very <laughs> religiously. Yeah, I don't know if you know it, but I'm running for sheriff in Broward County. I don't know if you know Florida against a guy who busted two live crew. What experiences have you both had? with censorship because i know you've had billboards censored and you have your problems with the lyrics we're on a list we're on all those lists like we i was sort of astonished that ramones joey had a uh, a list of things they, and they just throw you on randomly i mean they what did they they said we had like you know lots of, i don't really think we have a, if we have any drug references in our songs i think there's like one little in one of the first album songs this something about smoking pot in Hawaii and oh, right, that's yeah. about it. It's, yeah, it's really minor and you know and they, you know when they just say they just have these lists you see any of these things with the list sure. and every group you could think of is, has has some of them one some I haven't one. seen these lists yeah that list exists oh no but you want to be on the list I mean that means you're alive good 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 riddance Chris Be before you were uh, blondie you were a playboy bunny what was that like it was hard work well, how, how did you how did you get from Jersey into into the world of being a bunny? Um, it was I don't know I I did that I was in a band I came to New York, and I was in a band and I had a couple of little jobs you know to support myself, and then after that broke up, I um, I decided I would be do be a bunny for a while, and it was good you know I was interesting and I made some money make how, a lot of money. How many guys hit on you when you were a bunny? A lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not too many, no. Do you find out that uh, uh, men are easily intimidated by A, pretty women, or B, famous women? Yes, it's unfortunate. If I saw you in, 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 a, in a, having dinner, I would not know how to approach you. I would be so intimidated. M men are. I think uh, men are intimidated, and a particularly pretty woman, so men are just afraid they're going to be rejected. I mean, is that, has that been borne out by your own experience? I think so, yeah. I mean, it seems to be more difficult for me to pick people up. How, how, what would, what's a comfortable way? Now, not as a musical icon, but just as a woman. How, I mean, I know no woman's picked up unless she wants to be picked up. But what, what are comfortable lines you've heard that made it easy and comfortable to meet somebody? Who are you? Really? You really had to know. No, I mean, I, I think I use, that's my line. I use that line. I like that line. What if a guy came over to, to you and said, gee, did you used to be Blondie? Say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would you, would you uh, get involved with a guy who didn't know your music or didn't like your music or didn't even like music? Is that an important prerequisite to be in your life? Well, I think in the long run, it would, I would have to, you know, be involved with somebody who likes music. But uh, not necessarily would they have to be familiar with mine. I, I like all kinds of music. If they like folk dancing and Lawrence Welk, they're okay? Well, <laughs> I don't know, ballroom dancing maybe, but I don't know, folk dancing, Lawrence Wells now. I can live without that, yep. No, I love Western music. Uh, is it, oh, yeah. Am I a schmuck? No, no, Western music. You like Katie Lang, right? Yeah, I like Katie Lang. I like lyrics. I, yeah. I, I like music that the words say something to me. I've always liked it. I'm only upset that West music is too popular now. Yeah. But but it says, um, where do you stand politically? We'll be back next week with more from Al Goldstein, Chris Stein, and Debbie Harry. Stay tuned for more Midnight Blue. My puppies make a pizza in his pizzeria, and I sell a Toyota in my Toyota. Pop keeps all the right stuff on hand. I got a lots of Toyota in stock for immediate delivery. Bay Ridge Toyota Rias slices prices, and they've got enough cars for immediate delivery on the sizzling Toyota you want. Big selection, low price, immediate delivery, and a pinch of a pride just like a pop taught me. That recipe has been in the family for three generations.
Hey, who was the wisest guy who would order a Toyota Celica with a pepperoni? <laughs> And that concludes our broadcasting day. Till next time. Watch JSTV as it watches you.